How many of you have ever been in a, a difficult time in your life, uh, a hard situation, a time of suffering, and you say these words out loud, what in the world is going on? Anybody ever done that? If you're like me, you've probably done that recently. Uh, for the Christian, there should be a follow-up question. For the Christian, the follow-up question should be, how in the world should I respond to what's going on in my life? What in the world's going on, but how should I respond to what's going on in my life? So, to refresh your memory uh, from last week, Peter is writing to people who are suffering. He's writing to people who are being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And I want to make sure we understand uh, the principles that we have in God's Word here in First Peter are not limited to just persecution or suffering for your faith. It can be applied to all kinds of suffering, physical suffering, the loss of a loved one, um, uh, a difficult spouse, or um, children who can be difficult to deal with. Amen? Uh, we can apply these principles to all kinds of hardship in our life. We don't want to limit what's going on here just to being persecuted for our faith. So I want to make sure we understood that. But last week we saw Peter, he was encouraging these suffering Christians by reminding them of who they are. He said, remember who you are when suffering comes. You are chosen by the Father, you're cleansed from sin by the Son, and you're set apart by the Holy Spirit. At the very beginning of the letter, we ought to find that interesting, that Peter grounds everything else he's going to say to these people in their identity of who they are in Christ. That's the first thing he points out. Here is who you are. Today we see Peter deal with how believers are to live when suffering, and he'll ground everything that he's going to say to these people about how to live in suffering in a clear sense of what it is that God is doing in the here and now. What is happening in our life as a child of God is not just fate or chance. I think as Christians, I think we understand fairly well our salvation past. We hear the gospel, we understand what we're to do, how we're to respond, we repent of our sin, and we put our faith in Jesus. We, we understand that, and we understand our future salvation, right? There's hope for the future, Jesus is coming. We, we, we hear that, we, we know that, but some days we don't live like we believe that, but we understand those things. But... We, as I said last week, we can have a hole in our gospel. We can be confused about the here and now as Christians. We understand the past salvation. We understand what's coming, but right now is where we have a hole in our gospel sometimes. And that's what Peter's going to help us with today. So if you're looking at your hand out there, the main idea is praise or praising, depending on how you want to do that, praise God for the certainty of salvation. Praise God for the certainty of salvation. So looking at verses 3 through 5, we have it outlined this way. Praise God for His mercy. Praise God for His mercy. Verse 3 begins with the idea of what, church? Praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says that God is to be blessed. That's the idea of giving praise to God. Peter's just said that Christians, the Christian is chosen by God. He's cleansed by the blood of Jesus. He's set apart by the Holy Spirit. He says when a believer looks back to that time of trusting in Jesus, we are to realize that God the Father planned our salvation. God the Son achieved it. And God the Holy Spirit applied it to our lives. That's what Peter has told us. These truths should affect us as believers. Here's who you are. 
He has pointed those things out to us last week. In verse 3, we see the effects. You remember what? You understand what Peter's just said? Here's who you are. And how does he begin verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of like when we were singing earlier. How great thou art. Verse 3. And when I think that God his Son not sparing sent him to die, I scarcely can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. What comes next, church? Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. Did you hear what the songwriter said? He is saying, here's who you are. Here's what you have to look at. What is your response? My soul sings, how great God is. Notice the theology there in that verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's what I want to ask you. Is this what you think of when you hear the name God? We go through our day a lot of times and we hear people use that word, right? Sometimes it's not good how they use it, but we hear people say, use the word God in many different ways. Notice what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The theology in this verse here is what got Jesus crucified. This is what crucified Jesus. He claimed to be the Son of God, that God was His Father, and that's what caused Jesus to be crucified. Now, when someone says they believe in God, we need to ask the question, does that mean they believe, or what they believe about God, does that align with what the Bible says? We've heard people use that word. You heard someone use it probably this morning or yesterday or somewhere on the job this week. You've heard people say the name, I believe in God. God, right? As Christians, we we ought to be listening when we hear people use that name and ask, well, does what they believe about God align with what the Scripture says? Let me give you a verse to help you with that. John chapter 5, verses 36 through 38. Listen as I read. John 5, 36 through 38. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. What is Jesus saying that God the Father has done? He sent Him and then He bore witness about what Jesus was here to do. He's the Son of God. He is here to bear the sins of the world. His voice you have heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the One whom He has sent. So here's the application I want to give you right quick. What will you do this week when someone mentions the name God? What will your thoughts be? Will it just be just to go on your way and think, yeah, I hear that name constantly? Or you stop and ask the question, I wonder what they mean when they use that name. Will you explain... That God is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. Peter tells the believer what he has been given. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be what? Born again. You, Christian, have new birth. It's talking about spiritual birth. It's not talking about physical birth. And I think we understand that. God produced a new life in you. You were dead, but now you are alive. That's what's being said here. And God caused your new birth. Your new birth has absolutely nothing to do with you for you being able to take credit. Why? Notice what it says. It's according to what? His great mercy. 
In case you uh, may want to doubt that, listen to what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 says. As I read these verses, there should be some people in here that their ears perk up and they begin to say these words without even thinking about them. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us a lie. So if you weren't alive, what were you? Dead. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Continuing the verses in Ephesians, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Notice the mercy here is not just any mercy, but what kind of mercy is it, church? Look what it says. What kind of mercy is it? Great mercy. I think we understand what mercy means. Mercy is when someone gives you something or they withhold something from you that you deserve. Or they they give you or they withhold from you what you don't deserve what you don't deserve. Notice it's what kind of mercy? It's great mercy. The word great assumes need on your part, but it also indicates adequate provision on the part of the one giving it. You not only need mercy, you need what kind of mercy? Great mercy. There was a great need and there was someone, God the Father, who had adequate provision to show mercy. You see, it's mercy we need and not just justice. We live in a world where everybody says what? That ain't fair. I want what's fair. Let me ask you a question. Do you really want justice? You better be careful. You do not want what you deserve. Notice it says, according to His great mercy. Mercy is the source of our what? Our new life. Great mercy caused what? It caused us to be born again. God was great in mercy. And He gave that mercy to us. So here's another point of application. When you encounter lost people this week, what is the message that they need to hear when they talk about God? That God is... uh, Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they also need to hear what? About God's mercy. They need to hear the words that you must be born again. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus told Nicodemus there, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot, what church? See the kingdom of God. That's pretty clear, right? Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Then in verse 7, Jesus repeats it and says, you must be born again. That word must is extremely important. It means this must happen in order for this to happen, right? You must be born again in order to what? See the kingdom of God. Look at verse 3 again. You are not only born again, but you are born again to a living hope. That word has the idea of an eager, growing, thriving hope. A hope that's fixed on the life of To come. But you're living that life now. Remember that before Jesus, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 says, We had no hope, and we were without God in this world. Have you ever contemplated that? That before you came to Christ, you were in this world and you were without God. Think about that. Without God. Those people you work with, those people in your family, your loved ones and your neighbors who talk about God, who don't know God as the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they don't know His great mercy. 
That person you are communicating with, that you're working with, they are without God. Verse 3. Notice how this living hope happens. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In case you're wondering, you could use 1 Peter 3-9 through here as a way to share the gospel with someone. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In His death on the cross, Jesus does what, church? He, he takes our sins. But if God had left Jesus in the grave, what would that mean for us? Our salvation would be incomplete. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, He would not have conquered sin and death. So there's the gospel. Jesus dies for us. He must rise from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17 says, if Jesus Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. If Jesus, He can die on the cross, but if He doesn't rise from the dead, the faith you put in Him is what? Worthless. You have a dead Savior, which in reality is not a Savior at all. And you're still in your sins. Look at verse 4. We see the nature of this salvation. God saved us to a living hope and to a salvation that is guaranteed. How many of y'all like things that are guaranteed? When you buy something, what's one of the first things you want to know? What kind of guarantee am I going to get with this, right? You buy a new refrigerator, a dishwasher, um, a tractor, a new car. You're wanting to know, how long is the warranty on this thing? How long is it guaranteed for? God saved us to a living hope, to a salvation that's guaranteed. Notice what it says. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. That's what you have in your salvation. It's an inheritance. Notice it says it's imperishable. That means it can't be corrupted by anything. Nothing can corrupt your salvation. It's undefiled. This word here sticks out to me. it, It yells at me. Which This word means it cannot become filthy or stained or polluted by sin. Now, after we come to Christ, we are new creations, right? We seek and pursue holiness. But we know from 1 John that we do what, church? We sin, right? This word tells me that I'm to be pursuing holiness, but at times I'm going to sin, I'm going to fall. And my sin cannot stain my salvation. It's undefiled. Nothing I do can take it away. Now that doesn't give me free reign to live any way I want to. But when I make those mistakes, when I do those things I shouldn't do, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, the things I want to do, or I should do, I don't. Right? You know Paul, he's struggling there. That's what he's talking about. But anything we do can't defile our salvation. And notice it's unfading. It won't grow dim. It won't lose its luster. That's what that word means. Notice your salvation is also secure. It's kept in heaven for you. Kept has the idea of something being kept safe. Carefully watched or guarded. And if that doesn't convince you, look at verse 5. Are you getting the picture here? Keep this in mind. This is building. Peter's building this and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we'll come to the suffering part here in a little bit. But notice verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you see that? Who by whose power? God's power. Here's a question. What is stronger than the power of God? 
Nothing. There's nothing stronger than the power of God. Verse 5 tells us that He exercises that power continually. That word is in the present tense, meaning it's an ongoing thing. God is continually keeping by His power. He's keeping you saved. Your salvation is protected continuously by who? The power of God. You don't keep yourself saved. God keeps you saved. Why is that? It's because He caused your salvation to begin with. And you can't do anything to forfeit your salvation because you're kept by God's power. We'll talk a little bit more about our responsibility here in a minute. Notice the word guarded. What do you do when you guard something? Protect it, right? You're keeping watch over that. A lot of times you'll guard something to keep it quiet from getting away. The idea is paralleled here with what God did for us in verse 2. God's choosing and causing and guarding is designed to give the believer comfort and security that God has chosen us and He will continue to keep us as He is. Nothing can change that. In other words, God did not choose you to lose you. Remember that. God did not choose you to lose you. The God who chose you and who caused you to be born again is the God who is going to keep you. Does that comfort you? That, that, that doesn't give me the idea, well, if that's the case, I'll just go out here and do whatever I want to. No, it should do the opposite. It should devote your heart to loving God and say, I'm going to live my life in complete devotion to Him because of what God is doing in my life. Listen to John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. Make you a note and listen. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. What does that tell us? Nothing can keep it from happening. All that the Father gives Jesus, they're going to come. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me. That of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. What did Jesus just say? All that come to me, all that are mine, I will not lose them. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. That's the promise of your Savior. That all who come to Him, He will keep them. There's nothing that can take you away. You're guarded and kept by the power of God. However, notice... How it is that God keeps you. Notice what it says. Through what? Faith. God keeps you, not separate from, but through your personal faith in Jesus. If you truly belong to God, He will see to it that you keep believing. The power of God is the cause of our being kept. Our faith is the means for being kept. Look at verse 5. What is the purpose of you being guarded? For a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This refers to the final, complete fulfillment of your salvation. When Jesus returns and we receive our resurrected, glorified bodies. I think you've heard me say this. Here's the way salvation works. You have been saved. You are being saved. And you will be saved ultimately when Jesus comes. And we get our glorified bodies. Here's the application. Here's the way you should be thinking, Christian. God has secured you for a spiritual trust fund that nothing can touch. 
We invest a lot, don't we? And it's good. 401k, retirement plans. But how many of us wonder from day to day, is the bottom going to fall out of that thing? Am I going to lose it? For some of us, that's happened in the last few years, right? That 401k was going like this, and all of a sudden you get a statement in the mail, and you're like, I'm just going to file that in a way. I'm not even going to look at it because I know what's happened. But God has secured for you a spiritual trust fund that nothing can touch. You may not be rich now. You may not have a lot of friends. You may not be rich in the experiences of life. You may not be rich in material wealth. But it's guaranteed that you're headed toward unbelievable, vast riches in Christ. It's guaranteed. You have an inheritance, he says here. An inheritance that cannot perish, that cannot be corrupted, that won't fade away. It's guarded by God. So here's three words of application. Pursue that inheritance. Why? It's guaranteed. I'm not saying we don't lay up and and provide for the future and store away for uh, our retirement if we ever get to that point of being able to do that. But he says pursue what? What's guaranteed that's not going to pass away? No matter what you're facing today, here's what I want you to understand. Your life is steadily headed toward glory. And there's a day when the experience of that glory will absolutely overwhelm every difficult thing you have ever faced in your life. Peter says, Blessed be God, praise be to God. Now here's why he tells us that. Verses 6-9. through Praise God in the midst of suffering. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In this refers to what Peter's just said in verses 3-5. through Our salvation, that what church is guaranteed, it's an inheritance, it's not going to pass away. In this, in His mercy, which has caused you to be born again, this living hope, this guaranteed inheritance, and this promise that God continually keeps and protects you, what are you to do, church? You are to rejoice. And in the Greek, the word is a combination word. It means greatly rejoice. When the believer, when you contemplate the mercy of God, it should cause rejoicing. And listen, I want you to listen. Rejoicing here is in the present tense. Which indicates that we're to continually to be rejoicing in our salvation. No matter what's going on. Now notice I didn't say rejoicing in the hardship, but rejoicing in what? The salvation that I know in Christ. If, you, if rejoicing is not the case for you, here's the remedy I want to prescribe for you. Read verses 3 through 5. Continually read them. Go back to those great truths and meditate on them so that you'll realize what God has done for you. Y'all hear me say this all the time. Preach the what? The gospel to yourself. You know, as your pastor, I do that every day. In my prayer time, I preach the gospel to myself. I'm constantly praying to God how grateful I am for the death, resurrection of Jesus, the perfect life of Jesus. And I I, I pray to Him and thank God that He has opened my eyes to that truth and allowed me to believe that. In Scripture, this word here, greatly rejoice, is always used to describe a deep spiritual joy. In other words, this isn't the joy of temporary pleasure. It's not the joy when you get a raise or when you finally get that date or that handsome guy or that cute girl that you've been had your eye on, or your favorite sports team wins. 
God help us. If that's what brings us our joy in this life. This is a joy that comes from believing God's promises to us through His Son. You are to rejoice, verse 6. Notice what it says. Here here comes the kicker, as they say. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Various trials. Peter's not specific here. He doesn't give us specific trials. And I think that's because he has all kinds of trials in mind. In other words, all the things we go through in life that brings hardship to our lives. Notice the words, you have been grieved. The common denominator is that all trials bring us what? Grief. And they're different for everyone. What causes you grief may not grieve me. What causes you sorrow? Everyone's different. So here's the takeaway on this. Great rejoicing and suffering go hand in hand. We don't like that, do we? We don't like that. Great rejoicing and suffering, they go hand in hand. Verse 6, notice that Peter says that these trials take place, though now for a little while. You're thinking, oh, wait a minute. Peter hadn't been in my shoes. This suffering has been longer than a little while. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Make yourself a note. These will be good verses to look at. Later on, 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. So, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. How many would agree to that? The old man's dying, right? But our inner self is being renewed day by day. What's on the outside is beginning to not look so good, but what's on the inside is being renewed day by day. Listen to verse 17. For this light momentary affliction, you're going, wait a minute, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you hear that? Light momentary affliction. If you're like me, You've had affliction. This light's not in your vocabulary, right? And it's not been momentary. I just want to clarify here. Neither Peter or Paul is making us the promise that our suffering on earth is going to be brief. That's not what they're talking about. Instead, they're contrasting how short life on earth is with the foreverness of eternity. That's what they're doing. This life is short. Eternity is what? Forever. Notice verse 6 that Peter says that we are grieved by trials if necessary. He doesn't mean by our judgment. Instead, he means necessary by God's judgment. Uh Uh-oh, that makes a big difference, right? In God's great and wise purposes for our life, He allows hardship. He allows trials in our lives. When you suffer, listen to me, take comfort in this. All suffering is by God's design. It's never the result of fate or chance. First Peter chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Did you hear that? First Peter 4, 19. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will 
entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Do you hear what that verse says? Let those who are suffering according to God's will, what should they do? Entrust their what? Their souls to that faithful creator. And I want to clarify again. We should not have the idea that God approves or causes the evil that is often behind our suffering. However, it does mean that He is in control of the circumstances that grieve us. And He will not allow no more suffering to come our way than fulfills His purpose. I don't know about you. That encourages me. Nothing comes my way that it first does not go through the hands of God. Right? God's sovereign. He, he allow, he's not the cause of the evil that brings it, but He allows those things to come. How do we know that? Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes. How many of the things does God cause? All of them. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Verse 7. So what is the purpose of God allowing trials and suffering in our life? Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word tested there, some of your translations have proof, has the idea of tested with a view toward approving something. God does not test your faith to make it fail. Instead, He tests it in order to burn off, if you will, the dross, the impurities, and leave what's pure. That's why they do gold, right? They burn that gold. They put fire to that gold and to the dross, the impurities come to the top, and then they scrape it off, and what's left is pure. God does this by putting us where? In difficult, hard times. And it's there that we are forced to trust Him in ways that we would never trust Him apart from those trials. Notice that for God, the Christian faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. Gold and everything else in the earth is going to pass away one day. But our faith will remain because God's keeping us. Verse 7, though it's tested by fire, in order to refine gold, like I said earlier, they've got to subject that gold to great heat and it melts away everything. God wants to do the same thing with your faith. He wants to burn away the impurities so that it's a pure, clean faith, so that it's a proven, genuine faith. And He does this through the difficult times of your life. The word fire here lets us know what? Painful, right? And severe. But remember, that suffering and that great rejoicing, they go together. And what comes out on the other side is a pure Faith, a stronger faith in God than ever before. And I tell you something, as your pastor, the last eight years of my life have been the most difficult time of my life, Debbie and myself. But that trial, God has burned off what was impure in my faith. And He has grown that faith to where I love Him more now than I ever did before. He has, He's taken my faith that was weak and had bad stuff in it, and He's moved all that stuff away. 
Here's what we take away. The purpose of your trials, Christian, is to refine your faith. The perspective you need in trials is that they are temporary, they are necessary, and they are under God's control. That's the three things we need to remember. They're temporary, they're necessary, and they're under God's control. Let me ask you this as we close here. I know we read down through verse 9, but we're going to stop it right there today. We'll pick those verses up next week. Let me ask you this. Have you faced suffering this week? How about the week before? How about last month? How about today? Are, Are you facing some hard times, some difficult times today. Here's what I want you to ask yourself. What is the gospel that you preach to yourself in these difficult times? Is it the gospel of a loving Savior who will not leave you alone until every aspect of you has been completely refined, until you're being conformed to the image of Christ? Is that the gospel you trust in? That God is working in this situation to make me more like Jesus? He's burning off what's impure? Or is it the gospel of temporary glory where God is judged by the degree to which He makes your life comfortable? Is that your gospel? If it is, that gospel is not the gospel. Here's what we do. Verses 3-9 through are the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what we do. We pray in those times of trial and we say to ourselves, And this is where it gets hard. This too is love. In my suffering, even then, God is loving me. Wow. Even then, God is loving me. Because what's He doing in my life? He's taking away what's impure. He's going to do something in my life that if this trial wasn't there, it would not happen. He's delivering you to exactly what your heart craves as a Christian. The salvation of your soul. God is loving, He's faithful, and He's always good. Let's pray.